Hello, and welcome to Life Stories, a podcast where I interview memoir writers about their lives and the art of writing memoir. I'm Ron Hogan, and my guest today is Barry Yorgrau. He is the author of Mess, One Man's Struggle to Clean Up His House and His Act. It's just out in paperback from W.W. W. Norton. Hi, Barry. Ron, hi. Pleasure to be here. The subtitle here really sort of, of nails the whole project here. You know, One Man's Struggle to Clean Up His House and His Act. The first thing that I want to jump into here is how that struggle, how it was precipitated. I mean, your partner basically said, you know, it's time for you to clean up your house and your act. But as I was reading those opening pages, it's it's kind of a drastic situation that leads her to that pronouncement. Drastic. Yeah, I, I, I guess you could call it that. It was more that essentially she, I don't want to give away too much here, but she she showed up one day. I uh, use her old apartment as a, as a work studio. Mm-hmm. Her place is around the corner where we, we spend our evenings together, where we do our living, and I use her old apartment as a work studio. Over the course of years, we traveled a great deal. The place had become a gigantic mess, and I didn't want to let her in. I didn't want to let anybody in. It's interesting how life works. It's not like suddenly like the the, the warning sign began to, to flicker and throb continuously, but maybe it was sort of that. I knew I was in a kind of a difficult situation, and uh, it wasn't making me really happy. But I also was very attached to all my stuff, even the grocery bags, the plastic grocery bags that for some reason I couldn't let myself let go of. So the place was a kind of a shambles where I would show up every day to work. And she showed up one day. She hadn't been over, and I really never wanted to let anybody else over. Um, and I wouldn't let her in the door. And that led her to say, look, uh, you know, not only is this clearly... <laughs> Some situation out of control. I don't know if she threw the term order around, but it was in the air. But also it kind of is a metaphor for how you're living your life, because I'd gotten kind of uh, adrift on stuff. So she gave me an ultimatum, and as ultimatums work in these things, it took me a couple of months to get the, the wheels rolling, but then they got rolling. And what happened in the book, it does say one man struggled to clean up his house and his act. If you want to consider that a task oriented, title, a bit like saying, I want to go out and catch a fish. What happened as I did the book is I just started going into all these different overlapping worlds so that instead of it being a how I went to fish story, it became kind of like a version of Moby Dick. It got a little encyclopedic. Yeah, I mean, you talk about how as you began what you call your decluttering project. Part of that was, from the beginning, conceptualized as and I'm going to write about my decluttering project, and that'll be a really awesome book. And But as you note very quickly into in that, you hit very quickly upon what you call a double avoidance in that all the research that, that you're doing as you're, as you're writing, which you've just called sort of like the Moby Dick of decluttering, on the one hand, you weren't writing, mm. and you weren't cleaning. Yeah, what was I doing? Maybe I was meditating. No. What happened was I went in two ways so that I developed a self-consciousness because as a writer I was also and as kind of an investigator of this whole world that had opened up because it was really about the world of objects and memories and the pain of letting go, blah, blah, blah. So I became twofold. So on the one hand, wanted to be someone who was decluttering actively and I was chronicling how my decluttering was going. But I also wanted to be someone who was investigating the whole, all the deeper issues around this stuff. It developed into this kind of 
double track that went through the book. They kept overlapping, but I would it'd be very easy to be distracted from decluttering by finding some marvelous uh, history or some marvelous cultural uh, associations or to go visit people or to, you know, blah, blah, blah. And there was also a certain point in which I was documenting with photographs um, as kind of a project. And I would sometimes just leave my clutter alone. I would see a, a, a handful of dust somewhere and I'd say, actually, where does this fit in the narrative, maybe, where I would clean this? Or I would say, man, this would be a really interesting photograph in the right light. So then I would wait for the light or whatever, whatever. So these two overlapping things, which I think ultimately, if I may say, enriched the book and gave it a particular perspective, a distinctive perspective, also naturally made complications. And when you're given it all to procrastinating or to dawdling or to going off on sidetracks, even super interesting ones, it can make things kind of... <laughs> so the book took a long time to write, actually, much longer than I thought it would. Right. And at the same time, you know, you mentioned that you're going out and talking to people, uh -huh. talking to psychologists and organization or, or, or cleaning experts and, and, mm -hmm. and some very extreme hoarders. And as you're going through this, the whole time, as you say, you're taking pictures, they're on your mm -hmm. iPad. It, it almost comes across as a search for validation in a way. Like, you know, you're showing people pictures of your apartment. Right. Going, see... It's bad, but, but it's not that bad. Right, exactly. But it's bad, right? No, no, no. Indeed, indeed. And that was one of the things that people pointed out. I was playing kind of a, not a double game, but I wanted to say, look, I have, I realize I have a problem, but isn't it an interesting problem? But there's also an element of, it's not a straightforward problem. You know, like some people say, oh, you're a hoarder. And other people say, well, you're a clutter bug. There's a, there's a, there's, there's a difference between the two, which is namely that a cluttery person with clutter issues, can be brought to let things go. It may take a struggle, it may take whatever, they may relapse, whatever. But essentially, there's someone who is able to let things out of their house, be it whatever. Whereas hoarders have a terrible time and really it, it profoundly attached in a way that takes a tremendous amount of patience and, and just conscientiousness and, and reapplication to be able to do it. I mean, one of the things I discovered in the book, for instance, when I talked about the Moby Dick element was... In doing the book, I started to read psychology again, and I really re-entered kind of the world of where psychology was these days and where psychology uh, therapy is these days, and I was shocked to discover it because one of the discoveries I made was when I talked to shrinks a lot, especially in this field, is that they didn't believe in the unconscious. I mean, this is, like you know, cognitive behavioral therapy has sort of become this dominant form of uh, approaching problems. It's very short-term. It's very They all talk about it being empirical. So I wandered through the, the universe of the world of psychology today. That was one of the things I did. And what it made me, by the time I was done with the book, I couldn't believe it. I have to admit, I had become a fan again of psychoanalysis, which takes so long and, you know, explores in such depth and goes on and on and on. But at least psychoanalysts are aware that the problems in life are considered twofold. On the one hand, you really want to change. On the other hand, you really don't want to change. And both things operate, and you have to be aware of both things. You can really want something and really not want something at the same time simultaneously. And psychoanalysts are, are aware of that. And just the mention of psychoanalysis, and pardon me for rambling on here, but I had a good deal of fun with it. One of the things I did for the book was when I went to England to visit the UK's most extreme hoarder in his house, in his partly decluttered house, I also went to Freud's house in Hampstead, his museum, and I brought a lot, because Freud was a collector, 
And I wanted to explore the, the relationship or just touch that, what's the difference between a collector and a hoarder, which sometimes is very clear and sometimes isn't. So I brought along a young hoarding expert in psychology who had never been to Freud's museum, and I took her along to Freud's museum, and we assessed Freud's uh, statuary collection in terms of on the clutter scale and so on. It was very interesting. That double bind of, of psychoanalysis, mm. did you talk about that, that this... You know, the sense that you want to change and you don't want to change. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you talk about that with the experts that you encounter along right. the way. But you also write fairly extensively about your own therapeutic mm -hmm. attempts to deal with this issue. Mm -hmm. And the double bind there in that as somebody who is so intellectually engaged mm. in psychoanalytic theory, you know, attempts to get therapy to work mm. when you know what's happening. Mm. Is there a certain degree of resistance in terms of, oh, I see what you're trying to do here. Mm. Uh, you know, I, I see the gears working in this Sh way, uh, that way. The shrink of it. I don't know about you, but I've been in, and I, I would like to put you on the spot, but I won't. I've been in therapy off and on, I'm not currently, but for years of all kinds. I always thought of therapy as, uh, I have to admit, as a fencing match between me and the shrink. I wanted to use therapy as, a, as an instrument to help me write myself, interesting how that could be spelled two ways, um, but not intrude, you follow? <laughs> I remember saying once <laughs> to, uh, when I, I had a very bad experience that I write about in the book romantically, and I'll just note, the book was really an excavation of my own past and of my own attachments to my fa father and my family and whatever, and a lot of the stuff in my clutter involved me having to confront actual, you know, emotional episodes of my past that were extremely difficult, whatever. But one of the things I remember, uh, I'll never forget when I was in an intensive period of seeing shrinks, in order to get like antidepressants or something, I had to go see a psychiatrist who was a Freudian young guy, uh, uh, a guy who looked like a tailor from Czechoslovakia, this was in Los Angeles. And I said to him, he asked me a question, I said, well, doctor, let me answer that question candidly. And he said, or, let me answer that question honestly. And he said, you would answer <laughs> any other way. <laughs> and I thought, hell, of course I would answer, you know, who, who wants to have, you know, I'm a writer. I build realities that are, that I think are deeply connected to me, but in an aestheticized way. You know, it's, it's not, and maybe it's just me, but to, to disclose myself in the world, even though I write about myself autobiographically, this for the first time in a memoir and generally in my fiction, it's very disguised. And so the idea of keeping a disguise and revealing oneself is another theme that goes through, uh, I think is one of the rich approaches that not just psychoanalysts have, but that artists have. And one of the things that psychoanalysts did have that I've spoken to, and I met some fairly prominent ones, was respect for art as a way of revealing what the human condition and revealing the complexities of the human condition. And that respect for art is one of the things that again re-engaged me with the psychoanalytic uh, 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 approach, let's call it, not the act, you know, not that I'd go into psychoanalysis or whatever, um, but uh, uh, just because it's, as an artist, you're always working in a terrain where psychoanalysts go meddling, and where dreams go operating, so it's a, it's a, it's a touchy area. As Winnicott, D.W. Winnicott, one of the great psychoanalysts of English of, uh, of, of the 20th century said, every person has this tremendous, and child particularly, has this tremendous need to be known and also to not be known. So both things, that this double 
aspect of things, I think, is what really engaged me. In light of that, you know, as I was reading this memoir, it really sort of reinforced for me, you know, I think any memoir is, in a sense, an act of holding yourself up for scrutiny and holding yourself up for judgment. In a way, mess really kind of foregrounds that, in that this is very... It, explicitly because it because you're not only doing that with the reader you're also doing that with practically everybody in the book you're saying like look at my life mm -hmm. or look at you know, and mm -hmm. and frankly by saying look at my apartment you're saying look at my life right but and, and the thing is with the apartment is to a certain extent a memoir is people have doors which say this is my room don't go in you know a room of one's own right so in a certain sense a memoir opens that door so for an artist to go into there is really difficult and, and a, a process of tremendous opening up vulnerability. But on the other hand, the act of writing is a way of controlling it. Nobody's memoir is the forensic truth. It's all, every artist presents what they want to, elides this. I mean, how many memoirs have you read where people remember conversations in their childhood? You tell me one person who remembers what they said in the kitchen to their mother. I mean, they may generally remember. But if they start offering you dialogue, it's all constructed. Sometimes constructed with more veracity, sometimes constructed with less veracity. I mean, for me, one of the things that's interesting is that I'm usually a fiction writer of, if I may say, surreal fiction. But it's the surreal fiction like dreams, which is that it's actually very re revelatory and confessional. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'm known kind of as a fantasist or something, but actually everything is, emo you know, they're all based on kind of emotional events in my life that I dress up and, and change. And one of the books that's being reissued uh, this uh, uh, in September is a book called Haunted Traveler, which is kind of like travel gestures and whatever. But the subtitle of that book is an imaginary memoir. In fact, emotionally, it's an absolutely true memoir. I just use the, the word imaginary memoir as a way of just sort of, you know, infuming everything up. But uh, the two books, the fiction and the non-fiction, really are a pair. The thing with the memoir like this mess is that you don't get to wear a costume. You don't get to dress up as a chic or, a, a, you know, as a, as a, 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 you know, in a tuxedo, whatever. You have to just sort of present the plain facts. I mean, you have to be in plain dress. But as you say, it, it still is a certain kind of costume. I mean, there's whatever intentional similarities there are between Private Berry mm. and Mess Berry. Mess Berry is still a construct in a certain sense. And, and you play with that a little bit. You know, your partner's name, you change it three or four times over the course of the story because she decides she doesn't like the, you know, the pseudonym that you've given her. Yeah, I must say there's some, I don't know, thick-headed reviewers who've complained about the fact that, oh, I can't keep track of all the name changes. It's sort of like, geez, really? Okay. Um, but yeah, no, I had fun with that. As a matter of fact, at a certain point, I was even thinking, I toyed with the idea of having my girlfriend in one of her uh, pseudonymous uh, incarnations take over the narrative of the book for a while, <laughs> because part of the book is about that she has a streak of kind of bossiness. So it would make perfect sense in a way to have her actually take over the book because she's integral to the book. And in fact, in life, she has a very structured mind. So we're both writers, and she herself has written a wonderful memoir. She's been a guest on the show. She's been a guest on the show. Uh, and But she has a mind that really grips structurally tremendously. So we read each other's work a lot when we're writing. And without her work, 
I would have mean I would have been still wandering in the leafy, you know, in the leafy glades, saying, "Oh, look at that leaf! How really interesting!" So, what's it like showing her this work in progress? You know, and again, not giving away too much, but you know, you definitely cast the dispute between the two of you mm. in. There's a definite slant to your portrayal of, your, of, the, of, the, rela- of the of the argument that takes place in the relationship. No, 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 indeed. And it was, I had fun with it because it's, uh, I mean, one of the things in, in, in some relationships, or maybe all of them, is a byplay between, I mean, how couples argue <laughs> and how couples defend their egos and their turf or whatever, and how couples negotiate each other's personalities. It's all part of the truths and... and in, interesting things about relationships. And at one point, I wound up during the book actually seeing a Lacanian... Sh- I was it, When I was doing the book and I wrote about it, I was seeing a Lacanian shrink. And Lacan- She's a psychoanalyst, but she, we were doing therapy together. But that's... I would never in a million years have thought I would ever go to a Lacanian shrink. It was only by whatever happenstance. And they really, I mean, are famous for, like, n- not being brass tax people. But what's interesting, she made this one remark to me. At a certain point, I was recounting a conversation there, and she said, and I mentioned this in the book, she said, but sometimes you sound like, uh, you know, Martha and George in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? I said, yes, but lovingly. So there's an element, <laughs> there's an element in which somebody else, uh, uh, you know, there's an element in which it becomes a form of almost flirtation, let's say. And again, putting that, that very private flirtation. It's a sort of private mode of flirtation, mm. and putting that forward for public consumption, mm. it, I, I feel like it raises a lot of interesting questions in terms of, I mean, going back to what I said about, like, offering yourself up for judgment, mm. um, you know, at the same time, you're also sort of like, you know, you're offering up your relationship to the reader for judgment. And that was that was a scary element of mm-hmm. it, and when I was putting together the proposal for the book and stuff, I, an agent I, you know, my agent I spoke to said, you know, you're going to have to open up about your relationship and stuff, and I looked it out, and my God, you know, I've written about relationships, and, and I've written about my girlfriend actually before and other things, but always in disguise, so that people who maybe who really knew us could sort of figure out a little bit or something like it. But to, to just say openly, I mean, this, the pseudonym preserved it a bit for me, gave me a certain amount of distance. All artists, when if it's good, has this tremendous sense of exposure. I mean, what's interesting about artists is that, and, and see what you think, is that they're people usually who are very fragile and sensitive in certain ways, but they also have this uh, tremendous desire, not just to show, but to sort of present themselves in the world. I, I remember someone said something about David Byrne once that I thought was really interesting. They said that David Byrne was one of the shyest people they'd ever met. But he put himself out there by an act of sort of artistic will. And I think in a certain sense it almost represents what an artist does. They take a deep breath and then they throw it out there. Because without that you, you get fluff, which is, I mean, I, I have no problems with a certain amount of fluff. But the stuff that really shows you, the stuff that really stays with you is when people really... Don't forget, every novelist usually writes their first novel. I mean, it's, a, it's about family. And that's people who never will talk to them again. All artists betray privacy. What else are they going to write about? The weather? One of the, the real risks of that is that in putting yourself forward, I mean, you, you, you have a scene in here where you're describing your situation and your your project to an expert. And he just sort of looks at you and says, 
you're full of shit. Thanks for mentioning it. What <laughs> <laughs> if it's you know, it, I, I, I bring it up in part because it's like I mean, you know, these are the risks that you run in putting yourself forward. I mean, and, and, and as somebody who is, yeah, I mean, reviewers do it. Too. <laughs> you know, maybe no, not no, as indeed, but don't forget. But don't forget, I'm also a, you know, I, I'm, I'm a comic writer too. Yeah. And one of the reasons I did it was I wanted to make fun of myself. Mm-hmm. The scene was so deliciously funny. And you know, the thing is, when you write, you go, oh man, this may be difficult personally, but man, it's going to look good on paper. So that guy, uh, his name is Ron Alford. He's called the Disaster Master. He's been on television a lot, whatever. He's a really interesting, he's kind of like a, uh, what's the word, a daredevil, not a daredevil, but a roughneck, rough and tumble, old salt, with a really, like, the saltiest mouth I've ever heard in a long time. And he went at me, and I thought it was hysterically funny. I'll give it away, that we had dinner together, I bought, and we were sitting there, and I said, you know, it's so funny that he works with decluttering all the time. I said, you know, what's funny about me is that my decluttering doing a project about it is almost turned into an aesthetic project which interferes with my decluttering. And that's when he came up with, you're so full of shit in his Florida accent. Anyway, he's an, a, a great old guy. So, having been through both the process of decluttering and, right. the, and the process of writing about it, you know, where do you feel you're at now in terms of this of this space? I mean, you're not a hoarder. You say? Well, I have, you know, I mean, who's, I mean, I'm sure I have elements of that. I mean, what's a hoarder? A hoarder is someone who's so deeply attached to things that they can't let them go. And I know that I have periods where I become so deeply attached to things, they become like, I mean, there are all sorts of things I could go into, the, and the book goes into about what exactly is going on psychologically and so on. It, it, it's, it's rich. And we haven't touched on this yet. The, the whole issue of the 400-pound gorilla in the room of this issue these days, which is the gorilla is in fact not a gorilla. She's a petite young lady from Japan named Marie Kondo, who's written a book about minimalism. That's unbelievably... It came out after I turned in my book, and it's become this sort of voracious bestseller sort of thing, and inspired a lot of people. Her approach is minimalism. I'm not a minimalist. I'm categorically not a minimalist, but I am... There's a wonderful phrase from D.W. Winnicott, the psychologist, where he's talked about good enough... Mothering. I was going to say, like, basically everything you touch sparks joy in you as, as you're, or not everything, but it, I, I imagine you trying to clean your apartment mm. as you describe it in the opening pages mm. and picking things up and, and everything has like those associative properties for you. Mm-hmm. So that like taking that, you know, Marie Kondo sort of like right. does it spark joy approach to you. Right would be absolutely useless in your apartment. After the book came out, I went and spoke to a national convention of people who were involved with the study of chronic disorganization, it's called. It's not the National Organization of Professional Organizers, which is this huge organization. It's a specific organization that deals with these kind of things and deals with hoarders. A lot of organizers won't deal with hoarders because they're cheap things. And, and they said that one of their complaints about Marie Kondo was that they explicitly instruct people who work with hoarders not to have them handle things, because as soon as you get those people, people who are real hoarding issues, handling stuff and going, oh, does this, this, they're too attached, whether it sparks joy or it sparks something beside joy, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Uh, but it, it, it sparks this deep attachment and a nostalgia that's tremendously powerful. So when you go, does it spark joy? It's kind of like, a, you know, huh? What are you talking yeah. about? Yeah, I mean, I am, you know, imagine taking that approach mm-hmm. to, you know, to any of like, you know, the families in like the A&E or, you know, the other networks that these hoarding shows right. are on. But, right. And I'll admit, I used to watch the hoarding, particularly hoarders. I watched the first season or so of it. And the way that it sort of like fetishized the pathology of 
all this stuff. Like, basically trying to make everybody out to be the Colliers. Yeah, let's not knock the Colliers. No, there's a, by the way, you, it, I don't want to give it away, but there's a one photograph in the book that involves the Colliers mm -hmm. and me. So you see that. Anyway, it's, yeah. it's, 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 but it's also that, I mean, the thing about Hoarder, the Hoarders, the show, is that it's like, basically, if you've seen one episode of Hoarders, I realized, you've seen them all. The narrative never changes. I mean, maybe, you know, the only thing that changes is the degree to which somebody backslides in the, in the little tagline at the end. Or the degree to which somebody loses control and starts screaming. Mm -hmm. or, and, you know, here's the deal. First of all, I spoke to one of the original producers for the show. She thought she was making a documentary. She pointed out to me that the people to get on the show were not run-of-the-mill hoarders. They were people facing eviction for being, or, or, or legal issues for being, totally out of control and, and, and kind of, they were in jeopardy for their hoarding. It wasn't gardens, you know, you had to have testimonials about it. And people would write in and say, I have an aunt who is just so out of control that blah, blah, blah. They dealt with extreme hoarders. I watched the show a couple of, uh, I watched the bits of the show. I found it so awful, such a, so, such a form of sensationalizing that so much some shrinks will defend it that the show brought attention, made people understand there was a problem with hoarding in the larger world. Other people I talked to said they won't have anything to do with the show because they were first on and the, the people who were running the show were simply interested in, you know, what bleeds leads. They wanted the screams. And if you look at the trailers for the show, if you look at for the little previews, they're all about somebody flipping their wig. It's just, it's just a form of utter, utter exploitative sensationalism. One of the things that when I went to visit this guy in UK, who's been called the UK's most extreme hoarder, and you know, sensationalized versions of him, but the documentary that led me to him by an English guy on Channel 4 was actually sympathetic, and it wasn't some scream fest where you just went straight to somebody, you know, losing their cool. Yeah, let's start pulling his stuff out until he's... Until, until he screams, screams bloody mercy, and yeah. then you see someone grubbing on the ground for a couple of, you know, bobblehead dolls. That's uh, what gets you off. <laughs> Early on, you describe the degree to which sort of like the line between cluttering and hoarding as the degree to which that kind of like accumulative behavior interferes with your relationships right. and your your personal and professional right. obligations. Yeah, having been through the process, do you feel like you are more present for your relationships and obligations than when you started? No, but I, what I what I realized is, look, the person who started, who discovered this field of hoarding is a guy named Dr. Randy Frost at Smith College. I went up and visited him. I wanted it because my father taught at Smith 200 yards from his office, so there were all these lovely narrative things. And he essentially, you know, he's the one who helped establish these guidelines that the DSM, you know, the new things that if these things interfere with your life, they become hoarding. And if the spaces in your house, that's another thing, are really not able to be used in a proper way, that's an indicator of hoarding, whether it's extreme, where so that you can't see through the windows, or whether it's just something where the laundry just piled up all the time and can't negotiate. But essentially, what what there is in my house, I would say, and what became more of it, is that I think of hoarding as a kind of stasis. Things just get frozen. There's no activity going on in the house. There's no vitality. A hoarded space is a, is a monument to lack of vitality. There's a natural flow with some people like objects, they have a lot of them around, other people don't. Some people tolerate more dust, other people don't, whatever. But there's also this rhythm of things get cluttered, then you clean them up. Somebody's coming over, you clean them up, whatever. It's that kind of rhythm that I think I'd, be, I, I'd lost for various reasons, which I go into the book, because trauma, and there's a trauma I write about in the book that I think is central, trauma often causes people to go into hoarding behavior. And in my case, I think it really did contribute to that. 
in, in, in a lot of ways. And you have to work your way through this stuff. But I think what I became, I reawakened that muscle of having that rhythm or where if things get dirty, then you put, then you clean them up as opposed to saying things get dirty or oh, who cares. I started to care again. You know, I like to say proudly, I'm not a minimalist. I'm someone who loves objects. I really would divide part of the world into people who love objects, like having a lot of them around, or object-oriented. Not that they're deficient in their lives in other ways. They're just, how many artists love, you know. It's so interesting when you start delving into these things. Walker Evans, right? The great photographer, right? Mm -hmm. Walker Evans fits so many psychological... I mean, Walker Evans would drive around the countryside picking up signs in, in, in uh, older, abandoned uh, street signs or whatever, even yanking them off and carting them home. His house looked like an antique shop that had just sort of collapsed in on itself. If you look at pictures, he has a picture of his wash basin where the stuff around it, it looks like, you know, it's in the back room of a garage somewhere. People relate in all these different ways. It's a question of temperament, ultimately, I think. And the way that you've got into this place where you, you feel comfortable in your relationship to the objects in your apartment. I mean, I've cleaned up. Let's not... <laughs> but. So all of this is documented in, in the memoir. It's called Mess, One Man's Struggle to Clean Up His House and His Act. It is by my guest today, Barry Yorgrau. It is just out in paperback, along with two other books uh, that he mentions, that uh, earlier fiction books that have been reissued. Uh, he mentioned Imaginary Traveler during the course of our conversation. Haunted Traveler. Haunted Traveler. An imaginary, imaginary memoir. <laughs> and the other one is... is wearing Dad's Head. Sure to be looking for psychological <laughs> symbolism there. <laughs> Are you kidding? What psychological <laughs> So I encourage you to check out all of those books and... Thank you for listening to this episode of Life Stories. If you've enjoyed it, uh, I hope you might go on to iTunes and rate it very nicely. Uh, maybe even leave a complimentary review, both of which make it that much easier for other people to find and locate the episodes. And from there, you can also subscribe so that whenever a new episode comes out, you're alerted first thing and, and can listen to it right away. I'm Ron Hogan. I'm glad that you've joined me today, and I look forward to being with you again for another episode soon. Take care.